In the midst of a year that saw pandemic disease, social unrest, and bare-knuckled politics, Hollywood churned out a tremendous body of work. Even while theaters closed and films created for the big screen streamed directly to our homes. Today's guest says this year's Academy Award nominees reflect the issues facing Americans. He's Pete Hammond, this week on Story in the Public Square. Welcome to A Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Lutis from the Pell Center at Salve Regina University. Joining me from his home in Rhode Island is my friend and co-host, G. Wayne Miller of the Providence Journal. Each week, we talk about big issues with great guests, authors, journalists, artists, and more to make sense of the big stories shaping public life in the United States today. This week, we're talking about this year's Academy Award nominees with Pete Hammond, the awards columnist and chief film critic for Deadline, who's joining us from his home in California. Pete, thank you so much for being with us. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Well, so the Academy Awards are set for April 25th. Uh, before we get into talking about some of the nominees, I wonder if you can just give us a sense, at the end of this first year of the pandemic, what's the state of the film industry? <laughs> the state of the film industry is in flux right now, and that goes to... Uh, movie theaters, the whole idea of uh, what the future is going to look like after this year, where streamers have really uh, owned the uh, conversation. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, and there used to be what they call windows of, of 60 days or more between a movie's release and when it would appear in different forms uh, available on video and, and streaming and that and that seems to be disappearing now, and and uh, the studios are finding new ways of bringing movies uh, to filmgoers, and that's going to be a real mark of of what this pandemic has provided. And that certainly affected the award season here as well, because for the first time ever, the Academy Awards uh, voters are watching these movies on their television let's hope they're big screen tvs but you know god help us if it's on their laptops or even their phones however they're getting this and uh so it might affect uh the way they're voting for movies even in watching movies designed for the big screen that are being watched on much smaller screens now and the movie business uh it will be interesting to see how it comes out of this and if and if film goers return to theaters or if they've gotten used to watching movies this way uh, permanently. Um, so I hope not. I, I'm a big uh, proponent of theaters. So. Well, I, I wanted to ask you about that. I, I've heard uh, rock stars say that when they started performing in small clubs, the kind of song that they would write for a small club was different than what they would write if they were expecting to perform in a massive arena. Uh, having to do with the harmonics, the intimacy with the crowd, all of that. Does the story you tell on a 60-inch flat-screen television, is it different than if you tell it to an audience uh, in a theater with a two-story tall screen? 
Well, I, I think um, that is the thinking of a lot of studios. There are certain movies they've reserved for their big screen uh, films, these blockbusters, tent poles, they call them. And, and the movie business has been drifting towards that anyway. Uh, and uh, the other kinds of smaller films that studios used to make, uh, particularly, and, and used to release, uh, have been fading, that that middle-range movie. And that seems to be more where um, actors and other creative uh, artists are drifting towards uh, opportunities in streaming at Netflix and Amazon and different places to tell those stories, which aren't hurt by, seeing, by being seen on a smaller screen. Um, certainly, though, we're seeing now movies, we just announced that uh, Black Widow, Disney's Marvel movie, is going to go what they call day and date, same day as uh, streaming on Disney+. Plus. That's a sea change. And... Um, and I don't know that that's going to work because they, movie going has always been sold as this big thing you got to go out to, uh, surround sound, watching it with an audience. There is a different vibe for those kinds of movies, and I don't know if they'll play as well. And I think that may send people to the option of going to theaters still to see that kind of thing. But you're right. Uh, there is a different type of movie that you might make uh, for that as opposed to uh, streaming. So obviously one of the driving forces here will be whether or not people do return to theaters for the experience that you just mentioned, which, by the way, is really for many movies the best way to see a movie. But we're now into the second year of the pandemic. It's been a horrible year, you know, in terms of tragedy and suffering. And people, do you think people will be leery? I know you don't have a crystal ball, but what's your best <laughs> guess? Well, you know, look, the theaters just opened where I am in Los Angeles. They've been closed a solid year, except for drive-ins. This wow. has brought back the drive-in, folks. Um, but <laughs> but um, they have been closed. And so we're going to see here in, in the big centers that really studios count on for a lot of the gross of movies, uh, Los Angeles, New York City, um, and see if they're going to go in and, and if they're comfortable doing it. Certainly, I, I've seen evidence uh, that they are so far, but you can only have 25% capacity, so it's a much smaller crowd. I don't know financially if it makes a whole lot of sense. So we need to get back to that point where uh, people went out without thinking that they're going to die, you know, going to see a movie. And so the uh, theater chains have done a lot to try to assure people that the ventilation is good, uh, the cleaning systems they have now are, are st beyond state of the art in cleaning theaters after every show. The way they deliver uh, uh, popcorn and different things has changed uh, considerably as well. As people go in, they'll get more used to it, just as they seem to be getting more used to the idea of getting the shot uh, that's going to uh, help them out. There was some trepidation with that, but the numbers seem to be going in the right direction, we hope, and uh, and we'll get through this, and that and this will come back, people will be comfortable. Uh, and this doesn't just go for movie theaters, it's even more for Broadway, for, for live theater, it's even more important to have full audiences. So they, they're gonna be the last in this chain of coming back and with everyone comfortable. You know, those Broadway theaters are just so tightly uh, with the seats and everything yeah. so tight together. Uh, as opposed to a lot of movie theaters now, have their own version of social distancing. They've got much bigger seats in, in some of the ones that have been redone before the pandemic. So I think they'll adjust a little bit better, but concerts, Broadway live theater might have a, a bigger problem. 
How has the pandemic changed production, you know, starting at the beginning of the process, actually making a film? Obviously, you know, studios were shut down for a while, but where do things stand now and, and what's what's ahead in, in the future? Well, they've sort of gotten into a rhythm. Production is definitely going on. There are serious protocols. Uh, I mean, you know, I've talked to people like Ryan Murphy, who has five or six shows going all at once. And he says he's had hundreds and hundreds of tests. You know, they test every day. They sometimes test more than once a day. If someone gets a, a COVID positive test, that can affect the production. It will have to shut down for a number of days. They're very careful. The uh, movie industry has really moved seriously into uh, making sure that it's safe to make these movies. In terms of also uh, shooting certain scenes that you may have written into a script before, you may think twice now about that kind of a scene, how that's gonna play out. Uh, intimacy scenes, all sorts of things have changed in the way they're shooting them and, and the way they're writing them. So that, that, and that may be permanent. You know, that that may be a while before they get out of it, but it doesn't seem to have affected the final product in any noticeable way yet. If you watch television right now, you know, and all these shows have been uh, produced this season under this uh, kind of thing, they look pretty much the same to me. And we'll see what these movies uh, look like as they start to come out now as well. Well, let's get into the list of some of the nominees uh, for this year, and in particular, let's maybe focus on the on the films that have been nominated for 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 best picture. Um, and we'll just run through these, and we'll get your take on sort of uh, the films themselves and their chances this year. Let's start with uh, the Father from Sony Classics. Yeah, well, that's based on a, a play. Um, and uh, it was actually on Broadway, won a Tony Award for Frank Langella. Uh, but the um, uh, Florian Zeller, who uh, wrote the play in French, it was a French play, by the way, um, uh, and has gotten the chance to adapt it in this English language version with Anthony Hopkins and Olivia Coleman about um, uh, the onset of dementia with this man. And uh, it's a fascinating movie. And I think the way it's it's connected here it's been very smartly brought to the screen uh, by Florian Zeller, who knows his material well. But you see it all through the perspective of Anthony Hopkins as he's going through this. And so the film also got nominations, a small kind of chamber drama for production design. And why would that happen? Because they subtly change the set, the apartment that he lives in, uh, to see it through his perspective. So you suddenly see rooms looking different as if in the eyes of someone who is going through this and not seeing things as they normally would be. And that's really an interesting kind of uh, thing they've done. So it's up for editing, it's up for production design, it's up for all these kind of categories that uh, don't count and, and overall best picture, because I think it's really hit a nerve here with um, uh, Academy members. You know, that, 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 that those subtle changes that they make in that room. Also, it, 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 I was thinking about that when I watched uh, The Sound of Metal. Uh, from uh, Amazon. Uh, this is this is a film about a, a, a heavy metal drummer uh, who's losing his hearing, but they do things with the audio effects that I found physically uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, and that was on purpose. They actually went through Darius Martyr and his sound team, uh, Nicholas Becker and his, and his group, uh, to actually put it again, very much like the father, uh, and put it in the head of the audience watching it and make you uncomfortable, make you feel like you're you're experiencing that hearing loss as he is. I think it's tremendously effective. 
that movie um, also is up in the editing category as well because it's very tricky to put that together. They worked for months um, uh, to achieve this effect and it's groundbreaking in the sound. You know, the sound category the Oscars have, uh, people vote on it if they're not in the sound branch and think it's just what's the loudest movie. <laughs> and uh, usually all you see are these blockbuster, you know, uh, Marvel movies and things nominated for sound or war movies, sometimes musicals. This is a real example of the art of sound. And I hope people uh, recognize that. And I hope it wins in that category too. And as best picture, you know, that got in from a streamer. This, this is the kind of movie that would never have really been discovered on any big level, uh, even by the Academy, except that in this year, uh, there's an even playing field here. And a, a movie like that, that's very good, uh, uh, got in and, uh, and that's unique. So what about Judas and the Black Messiah from Warner Brothers? That's also nominated for Best Picture. This one came in late breaking. It's from a major studio. Remember them? And uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I, you mean Amazon, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, Warner's came out with it. They had a number of other things, uh, a big movie, Christopher Nolan's Tenet which um, was one of the early releases here in this year and was expected to be a big player here and isn't. Got a couple of craft nominations, but this movie snuck up because it has a lot to say. It's one of a number of social issue movies that are here about the Black Panthers and uh, Fred Hampton, who was head of uh, the Chicago chapter of the Black Panthers, and that, he's played by Daniel Kaluuya, and then an investigation into them by the FBI and others who um, are infiltrating that group uh, in Hoover's FBI, uh, and they enlist uh, this uh, character played by Lakeith Stanfield, and it's all true story, uh, to sort of go in and, and be a mole. Uh, here and it's so effectively made here, but it's also the first movie ever nominated for Best Picture to have all black producers, and that's significant. And this is this year is significant. And there's been a number of black-themed movies that could have been nominated for Best Picture and are in other categories. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, One Night in Miami, um, on and on with that list. Uh, Spike Lee's Defy Bloods. This is the only one of those movies uh, that rated a nomination, and uh, it's interesting that it did. And Warner Brothers uh, has released it in uh, conjunction with the uh, launch of uh, HBO Max, their new streaming service, Warner Media. So you can see this day and date as as well. So that's unusual for a major studio uh, that's had many Oscar nominations for Best Picture. First one where it's debuted uh, uh, the same day as it, it did in Holmes. It's not the only uh, film that looks at the activist movements in the 1960s. In fact, it's not even the only movie in this category that's got Fred Hampton portrayed. <laughs> yeah. um, so you've got The Trial of the Chicago 7 from Netflix. Tell us about that. Well, that's my favorite movie of the bunch. When I did my 10 best list, that was number one on it. And I think uh, Aaron Sorkin who uh, wrote it and directed it, but it started about 13, 14 years ago in the head of Steven Spielberg, who uh, knew this story, this crazy trial that happened in the early 70s about um, uh, uh, riots that occurred at the uh, 1968 Democratic Convention. And, uh, you know, the instigators, as they said, were put on trial, the Chicago Seven. Uh, and um, uh, finally, Aaron Sorkin, it came around to him 
and he he directed it's his second film directing and it's taken on such resonance now i mean even when they made it they had no idea that when it would be released it would be mirroring what's going on in this country right now and so it's one of those movies that may have an advantage because academy members love to give their best picture to something they feel is important or maybe saying something that makes them feel good too this movie fits the bill perfectly for that and it's got a great ensemble cast of actors um down the line and that helps because actors that make up the biggest branch of the academy so that's an important thing to have it's it, it checks all the boxes here and it's an exceptionally well-made movie because it, it not only covers the trial it covers what went on before it covers the riots and it covers uh, the interactions between these characters, particularly the uh, Tom Hayden versus Abby Hoffman and that kind of conflict they had, which is kind of fascinating and, and that this movie gives uh, more detail on. We need to take a quick moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. An audio version of this show can be heard four times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce Story in the Public Square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we're lucky to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center at Salve Regina University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can do so at J.M. Lutis. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller, who is an award-winning journalist with the Providence Journal and the author of 19 books, you can find Wayne on Twitter, too, at G. Wayne Miller. And our guest this week is one of the best film critics working today. Pete Hammond is the awards columnist and chief film critic for Deadline. You can find him on Twitter at Deadline Pete, spelled just like it sounds, D-E-A-D-L-I-N-E-P-E-T-E. -E -E. So you said it's your favorite. Uh, is it your pick to win? Uh, you know, it could win. <laughs> it's a very difficult year uh, to sort of uh, see how the whole pandemic and watching these movies at home, I think this one plays well uh, in that way, as opposed to one we haven't talked about yet, but is the front runner because all the critics groups picked it, and that's Nomadland. And, uh, and that movie is a very slow-moving, quiet, beautifully shot, but needs your attention and I think benefits from being seen in a theater, quite frankly. Uh, and I think you can get distracted at home when you're watching a movie like that, which is um, a beautiful film. Chloe Zhao, uh, the Chinese uh, American director, uh, has done this story of those who have dropped out of society and hit the road in their vans and and live like nomads. And and uh, Frances McDormand actually is a producer on it too. So if it wins Best Picture, she'll uh, get an Oscar on that level, uh, in addition to Best Actress, if she were to win that. So it, it's a very interesting, small movie uh, that has won all the critics' awards. So it's got going in, it's definitely the front runner. It won the Golden Globe. It won the Critics' Choice Award, so all these televised awards. Um, we'll see what happens uh, as we get closer to the Oscars. I'm, I'm not making my prediction yet. Uh, I think there are other factors, um, including a couple of movies we haven't talked about yet. 
Well, let's talk about a promising young woman from Searchlight. Um, excuse me, from Focus Features. Promising young woman from Focus Features. I gotta tell you, uh, this I, I've tried to describe this movie to a couple of people, and I don't think I can do it justice. This one, this one, you know, socked me in the stomach. Yeah, me too. And uh, this was in my top three of the year as well. Uh, I was blown away by Promising Young Woman. It, it's an extraordinary movie. It's also highly entertaining, and that helps it too. It's it's old fashioned in the sense that it's a it's a real uh, you know riveting kind of story to watch with Carrie Mulligan playing uh, this uh, young thirty something woman, giving up her career basically was still traumatized by an incident in high school that happened to her best friend, and uh, she has now taken all these years later a sense of revenge um, in unexpected ways uh, against uh, men involved and women too. Yeah. It's it's very interesting. It comes from a first time feature filmmaker, Emerald Fennell, who you may know, she plays um, Camila Parker Bowles on the current season of The Crown. She's an actress, oh, wow. uh, but she's always wanted to tell stories. She said when she was seven years old, she told her parents, I want to write stories about murders and move to America. <laughs> <laughs> well, she came to the right place for murder. <laughs> yeah, she sure did, didn't she? Uh, I talked to her a couple of days ago, and I asked her that, and she said that's absolutely true. And I said, well, you've done it. And uh, but she wanted to say something that you couldn't quite tell what it was going to be. She said, in this scene, you you think I'm doing a romantic comedy. In this yeah. scene, you think I'm doing a different kind of movie. And uh, she said, it's all got to come together, and you know, with all the twists and turns. Uh, but it also uh, speaks to these times, no question, in the Me Too era. She's made something that, again, has real gravitas and resonance, but it's also hugely entertaining. Great performance by Carrie Mulligan there and beautifully cast down the line, I think. That movie has a, a shot. It just won the Writers Guild Award for screenplay over Trial of Chicago 7. Uh, so, and that's important to see how these guilds vote because they are crossovers with academy voters they are all in the industry uh so we'll see that's a movie that could build but i really am impressed with promising young woman tell us about minari another movie i'm really impressed that was number four on my <laughs> list um uh, that uh is just a, a a true american story kind of reminiscent of classics like grapes of wrath it's about the American dream, but as seen through these immigrants here, and and you know actually they're um, uh, Korean Americans. They're moving from California to Arkansas because the dream of the father there, played by Stephen Yun, who's nominated for Best Actor, is to have his own farm and uh, and see if he can do that against all odds and everything they're up against. And it's a true family story, and 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 you really do identify with this family. It's like you don't have to be Korean or Korean American or anything to specifically identify. They seem universal in a lot of ways. And it's one of those quiet films um, uh, from uh, Lee Isaac Chung, who's a Korean American, taking a lot from his own life and bringing it to the screen. It, it was at Sundance uh, well over a year ago, and it won all these awards, and it, it seemed to be an audience favorite. This is one to look out for, too. Uh, just on the basis of how the Academy votes for Best Picture, it's a weighted voting system where you put your favorite, your second favorite, your third favorite. Sometimes it's more important to be a number two, uh, you know, and, and that can add up to, to a win, as we've seen in the past with movies like uh, Moonlight and Green Book and others 
that are real audience uh, favorite kinds of movies. And I think this one is too beautifully acted to um, uh, across the line by, by them. And so, uh, and it follows Parasite, which was a Korean movie uh, that won what became the first foreign language film to ever win best picture. And so it's interesting that we have this movie the next year too, which uh, could capitalize on that, uh, what happened there last year. Well, the last film on our list is Mank. Uh, from Netflix, uh, which is, for at least for me, perhaps as entertaining a film as it's, as is in this list. Um, tell us a little bit about that movie. Well, I love black and white movies, first of all. And <laughs> this is a beautiful black and white movie from a great director, David Fincher, who has been snake bit when it comes to Oscars. He's been nominated many times. I think he should have won with The Social Network. Um, you know, has had uh, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, uh, many others, great movies that weren't even nominated, like Fight Club and Seven and different genres. And uh, here he's done a really masterful movie uh, about the golden age of Hollywood, as it were, but really uh, dissecting the making of what many people still consider to be the greatest film ever made, certainly one of the most influential, Orson Welles' Citizen Kane, but it's coming from the point of view of the screenwriter, uh, which ironically was the only Oscar Citizen Kane won out of nine nominations was for screenplay. And now even more ironically, not nominated among 10 nominations for Mank is its screenplay. <laughs> Go figure, you cannot make this stuff up. Um, there are, it was written though, uh, by, uh, David Fincher's father, Jack Fincher, who died in 2003, had always wanted it to, uh, get made. There are all kinds of stories about how actually, uh, the final product represents the script that he wrote, or was there help from, uh, among others, Eric Roth, uh, who's a great Oscar winning, uh, screenwriter and who's a producer on the film. So I think maybe the writers were sort of wondering questions about the screenplay. But it's certainly, when I saw this movie, I said, the one group that's gonna vote for this movie for sure are writers. And uh, because it really does show uh, the value of writing credit and and the fight for that. And, and the whole thing of Hollywood at that time, the whole thing with William Randolph Hearst, beautifully uh, reproduced here, um, digitally, by the way, mostly. Most of uh, that whole mansion and everything is digitally done uh, wow. because Fincher is a master of, of digital. You know, there are directors who love film and want to use film. He is a guy that's adapted to these times and made a movie that looks like the ultimate film uh, with the great acting too. Gary Oldman, terrific as Herman Mankiewicz and uh, on down the line, Amanda Seyfried, uh, also nominated here as Marion Davies, um, uh, the actress, and uh, on and on. I think it's a beautifully made movie. It may have gone off the uh, rails a little bit with its whole thing about the California governor's race. Uh, it, it, it seemed to leave uh, what it was trying to be a little bit there. So some people uh, were turned off by that aspect of it. It's made it more of a long shot to actually win here, even though it has the most nominations. You know, so we've got, we could talk to you all day. We've got about 30 seconds left. Were there any other films that you thought should have been in this category or at least it deserves some consideration in this category. Yes, my number two film of the year, Paul Greengrass, a great director, News of the World, which is a beautifully made 
Western. Tom Hanks, first time he's ever done a Western, first time Paul Greengrass has. But that's a movie that also set five years after the Civil War, really dealt with a divided America, with, with two sides that just didn't seem to come together or believe anything from the other side. And I talk about a movie with real pertinence for now. I thought that one had it. And also it was beautifully made. I think that should have been in the, the best picture race. You could go on and on. Next year, it's going to be 10 movies, period. Not, not like between five and 10, like it is now. Um, it's going to be back to 10. So a movie like that could have gotten in next year. Oh, well, well, Pete, we uh, hope you'll come back and talk to us about next year's, but thank you so much for being part of this look at the Academy Awards. He's Pete Hammond from Deadline, and the Academy Awards are April 25th. Uh, you could, if you want to check them out. Uh, that's all the time we have this week, but if you want to know more about Story in the Public Square, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter, or visit PellCenter.org, where you can always catch up on previous episodes. For G. Wayne Miller, I'm Jim Lutis, asking you to join us again next time for more Story in the Public Square. <laughs>